Welcome to the Case for Conservation podcast, where we explore some of the underexplored aspects of biodiversity conservation and challenge some of the less convincing conventional wisdom in this field. Before I introduce the episode, just a quick bit of housekeeping. There is now a contact button at the bottom of each of the web pages on the on the website. So that's at uh, www.caseforconservation.com using the number four in Case for Conservation. So just click on there and there's a very easy to fill in form that doesn't require any personal information or anything like that. But there you can include your questions or comments or suggestions of what to do on the show or whatever else you'd like to communicate. Thanks very much to those who have already done so. Okay, so today's episode, the May 2021 episode of the Case for Conservation podcast, is about protected areas. Protected areas like national parks and nature reserves are perhaps the quintessential and best known form of conservation. But although I've worked in a few of them, I didn't really know how to respond to some of the critiques that have been leveled at them over the years and which I wondered about on and off. Brian McSherry, on the other hand, has plenty to say about this topic, and he was kind enough to share his knowledge about protected areas with us. Brian is head of the Group for Biodiversity and Nature at the European Environment Agency in Copenhagen, and he was previously project leader of the Protected Planet Initiative, which, as you'll hear, has a lot to do with protected areas. After discussing how he became involved in this work, we talk about what constitutes a protected area, in other words, what is the definition, how much of nature is protected worldwide in terms of area now, the usefulness of the concept of protected areas with, without an international standard to guide it, the difference between protected areas and other effective conservation measures, or OECMs, and the key differences between terrestrial and marine protected areas. We also touched on the topic of the impact that protected areas sometimes have on communities, but only briefly because this deserves an episode of its own, and that's something that I'm planning to record pretty soon. Each of the specific topics that I've read out here in order in the order that they appear are also included in the description of the podcast along with the timestamps in case you'd like to skip directly to any of them. How did you become interested in conservation in the first place? I remember when I was a kid watching the Jacques Cousteau TV series where you see, you know, people diving in very exotic places. Likewise, then with David Attenborough, the famous British naturalist, he did a lot of TV. And growing up in Ireland on a kind of a wet island in the Atlantic, looking at these sunny exotic places with lots of big animals and coral reefs in the water, it was quite... Um, different to what I could see looking around my window or when I went up to my um, my mother's family were all farmers so we used to go up to their farms and you know we would see what I would now call species rich grassland we would just call it the field so you would notice a lot about kind of conservation but it was very much those very kind of 
awe-inspiring, you know, panoramas of the Serengeti or the savannas of Africa or the Amazon rainforest and the, the noise that you hear and these big animals. And especially for me, it was the coral reefs that set a kind of an interest I had already in science. And I suppose then in school, I loved science and geography and I used to love reading atlases and books about nature. And a very, it was very much for me as a way of traveling around the world as a teenager in Ireland. You could suddenly be in Africa or you'd be on Australia or anywhere or Asia. And then when I was in university, I did geology. And that is really kind of geological conservation. You're kind of imagining what the world was like for the last few hundred million years. And then I did zoology as well as part of my degree. And so what was your career trajectory from when you finished studying until where you are now? I didn't quite know what I wanted to do in my life, but I enjoyed kind of research and I enjoyed studying and I think I really enjoyed being a student as well. And so I was offered a PhD in geology in Dublin and it was working on an area of the west of Ireland called the Burn. It's a big karst landscape area and I've been there on field trips and holidays and I just, I loved the area. It was amazing. So the opportunity of not working for a few years while being a student and hanging out and doing something I liked was too good to pass up. So when I was doing that, I did a lot of uh, GIS, you know, mapping this geographical information systems where, you know, doing basic cartography and doing analysis from that. And when I was eventually finishing my PhD, um, if my parents are listening, it's, it, they would definitely say the eventual. Um, I was looking for jobs and I bumped into a friend at a party one night and she was like oh I got an email looking for someone who can do science and GIS to work with the National Parks and Wildlife Service in Ireland but you know the deadline is tomorrow so I very hastily sent off a CV and an application so I went for that and I got a it was a six-month role working in the National Parks and Wildlife Service in Ireland helping create management plans for protected areas and I worked with a team there and my main job was um getting maps and um, creating protected area boundaries from them and then doing getting habitat maps people had drawn they'd done field surveys so having done geology I knew all about field work and doing field mapping so I was able to transfer that into a digital platform and then I started doing different types of analysis for them and I could say oh well this is what's happening here and here and that six months continued on for four years we started doing some field surveys and I would go out with them and I'd capture that information digitally and bring it back into my systems and I'd start connecting all my data sets. And I just slowly got more and more interested into the, the why they were doing what they were doing and the policy relevance for it. And then I got an opportunity to move to the Natural History Museum in Paris to work for a year and a half on a um, project looking at the conservation state of habitats and species in Europe. It was for the European Environment Agency, but it was hosted in the French Natural History Museum. And that year and a half lasted for six years. Um, it was the first time they'd done a project where they were looking at, I think it was at 250 habitat types in Europe and about two and a half thousand species, which are emblematic of the rest of the habitats and species in Europe. And moving from working with one country to working for 25 countries at the time with the EU, which was a big eye-opener because I would have had my way of understanding things. And suddenly you've got at least 24 different ways of understanding. And I was working with a team of, uh, I think, 11 nationalities. And then you got more into the policy aspect about, like, why are we doing this? How are we doing this? What's the data telling us? I mean, what is the state of habitats in Europe? 
we could say they're not very good, but how, can we quantify that? So we worked out how to quantify it. And then, of course, this was the first time we did this project and it was a lot of learning experiences from it. So the first thing we did after we stopped that was create all the lessons learned from it. But one of my roles in that was looking after protected area data sets in Europe, working with all the different countries to get the latest data set they have and doing analysis and doing kind of indicators and writing little pieces of narratives and stories. And that fed in then to the global dimension. And a few years later, I moved to Cambridge in the United Kingdom to work for an organization called UNFWCMC, where I was the lead of Protected Planet Initiative, which was um, the World Database on Protected Areas and the Protected Planet website. And it was the organization that got all the protected areas in the world together into one place. Bring my knowledge of working both in Ireland when I was doing this work with the European dimension of working for 25 plus countries to 255 countries and territories across the world and realizing that there is many more than 255 different ways of interpreting things. And then about two and a half years ago, I moved to Copenhagen to work for the European Environment Agency where I started off um, developing an information system. And recently I've become the head of group on biodiversity and nature, where we work very closely with the European Union on their European biodiversity strategy, and very much about protecting and restoring the environment in Europe. So it basically it started at a party. <laughs> Who knows where I would have been if I hadn't been to that party. <laughs> okay, so let me kind of transition to something on on definitions. Can you tell us what constitutes a protected area and how that definition differs from place to place. Because I think that a lot of people will be familiar with national parks or nature reserves or nature preserves. You know, there are all these different terms that are used even in, in the English language. Back in, I think it was 1959, the UN Economic and Social Council passed a resolution which was approved by the UN General Assembly in 1962 that said they wanted a list of national parks and equivalent reserves. Of course, that means very different things. But what happened was that name evolved over time into national parks and protected areas, and then suddenly into protected areas, because it became very clear that people were using similar terms in very different ways. And of course, they need the linguistic issue that, you know, in France, it's not going to be called a national park, it'll be called a parc naturel in very different countries. But even then in, in the English language, when people translated them, it became very clear that you were talking about apples and oranges. So in 2008, uh, a guy called Nigel Dudley, um, who was working for IUCN or on behalf of IUCN at the time, came up with a definition along with different people. And it says that a protected area is, it's a clearly defined geographical space that is recognized dedicated and managed through legal or other effective means to achieve the long-term conservation of nature with associated ecosystem services and cultural values. That's a bit of a long-winded way of saying it's a physical space that has been recognized that is primarily for the protection of nature. And there can be legal tools or there can be different types of tools for that. And so it's really an area that's primarily for that. And the aim of that was to try and make sure that we were speaking a similar language because it does vary across the world. So these terms like a national park, a nature reserve, they, they're fundamentally legal descriptions. It's a very legalistic thing. I mean, I'll, I'll talk about, about indigenous and community ones a bit separate, but the common terms we'd know, what they mean eventually is you have to go back and look at the legal framework in a country. So um, even in the English language, like a national park in Ireland and a national park in Australia, and a national park in America are so 
different, they're not even comparable because if you've got to look at the law behind it, then you start seeing what these sites are for and the degree of protection that are associated with it. Because that definition that I read doesn't say a lot about the level of management or protection it's offered. I mean, that's they put forward this definition and said, okay, now countries need to create a legal framework to implement this so they can do things. I mean, in I think globally, I could be slightly wrong here, but I think there's um, about one and a half thousand different types of designations being used. And in some cases, you've got the same words being used, but it means very different things. And even within countries, like in some of the countries that are federated, the names can mean different things depending on the way the laws are set up. When they wanted to get a list of protected areas, they need to have a common understanding of what it is. And there's still a recognition that countries can interpret that in a different way. They might have a, a legal definition on their own statute books, which they say, well, this is what we call a protected area. But most countries have tried to make sure it's as close to that IUCN definition as possible. And now the CBD have another definition, which is a bit simpler, that was created in 1992. But they've more or less agreed that they all mean the same thing. A protected area is an area that is clearly defined. You know where it is, and it is for protecting nature. And there should be a degree of legal enforcement or protection upon that. Um, you also then have community or, or indigenous people have equivalents to protected areas, which is why IUCN had other effective means, because they said in some cases it's local communities that are protecting this and there isn't a law about it. They've got, there's, I mean, a communal respect or communal understanding, and that's what they're doing. Protected areas have been around since time immemorial. I mean, as soon as there was people around, there was areas that were we would call them protected areas, but the language would have been quite different. Um, you have like what we would now call sacred and natural sites. And then, for example, in the UK and after the invasion of the Normans in 1087, William the Conqueror had created something called a new forest as a hunting reserve. And this was an area that was locked off from everybody, but only hunting for the royal family. And they hunted once, twice a year. In Poland and Belarus, there's Bielowieża forest which is i think since the 1100s has been a protected area from the duchies of poland and lithuania where you couldn't do anything i mean they would go in every now and again and go hunting but it was not very intensive in sweden you had lots of forest that was protected for um, shipping same in the ottoman empire so they were doing things for a reason but it was protecting it and then you've got the the cultural aspects. Um, in uh, One that always rings to my mind is in Mongolia, I think it's called Burkhan. It's a mountain that um, Genghis Khan is meant to have sat down and you know contemplated after a defeat in a battle what he could do. So then when he became the Khan, he created it as a royal mountain. And um, on the border between China and North Korea, you've got Chiang Bai Shan or Mount Paku. And it's culturally, it's where they say the Han people are meant to have come from. And that would have been protected. And then you've got the Tabu or Tapu in the Pacific region. So, I mean, I think in every country, every culture, there's always been some level of protection. It may not have been necessarily for biodiversity or nature. It could have been about clean water. Um, with the Tabu in the Pacific, it was about fishing. They realized thousands of years ago that if you overfish in an area, it's gone. So they basically had seasonal restrictions as to how much fish you could capture where you couldn't do it. So I would say as a conservation person, that's a protected area. They might say, no, it's not. It's a taboo or taboo. It's, you know, our cultural areas. So, yeah, that's a definition is to try and capture all these different ways of understanding of how we as a society 
effectively protect mm. our environment. So in the lead up to this discussion, I, I mentioned to you that I wanted to talk about paper parks, this, this whole idea of paper parks. And a lot of what you said is sort of led down various roads in that, uh, that direction. I guess that what I'm wanting to know is in the framework that I suppose I'm most familiar with, which is that of the CBD, there are these targets, the IT biodiversity targets, which are coming to an end. They should have come to an end already, but because of COVID, everything's been kind of delayed and the new framework is, is yet to take over. But anyway, one of them is very clearly on protected areas. So under that definition, which, as you said, is, is more or less aligned with the IUCN definition, protected areas is kind of a unified concept to some extent. So... Uh, actually, first of all, can you tell me, do you know what at, at the moment, what is more or less the global coverage? So the, the IT target number 11 had a target in mind, but as far as I understand, it wasn't quite reached, but it was one of the sort of near success stories of the of the IT biodiversity targets, right? Yeah, I mean, so the current figure globally as of April 2021 is about 15.5% of land is protected. And... In the sea, it's about 7.6%. I'm saying protected with inverted commas here. But there's huge variation within regions and within countries. So, for example, in the European Union, which I'm probably more familiar with, it's 26% is protected on land and 11% in the sea. In Africa, it's 14% on land and 12% in the sea. And then you've got some countries that have 2 or 3% protected other countries with 50 60 percent protected so you get a massive variation and i think what these targets such as IHE and also the sustainable development goals they act as kind of motivators to get countries to get behind something and the the post 2020 discussions that are happening they're coming up with targets and at the eu level since may 2020 we've had an eu biodiversity strategy which is very clear it was 30 percent by 2030 and I think that seems to be the figure that's going to be used for the the new targets that can be set hopefully in October in Kunming and China will be 30% on land and 30% on sea. But I think maybe going back to your point about the paper parks, there has been a significant increase in the last 10, 20 years in the number and the area of protected areas, both on land and on sea. On land, the trend is actually in area, it's actually pretty stable. It grew quickly from 2000 to 2010, but since 2010, it's actually pretty much plateaued in a way. It's uh, it's happening, but it's a bit slow. Um, in the marine environment, there's been a huge increase in the last number of years. At uh, one stage, it was every three or four months, the largest protected area in the world was being created. Mm -hmm. But it does go back to that point you made at the start about the paper park aspect. So we're seeing a large increase in the gazettement of sites, which is the legal term for the creation of a protected area. The biggest question with all of those figures I've said to you is the what happens after that? And are they what we call effective? So the general way protected areas are created is normally you would have people come up with an area that they would deem necessary to be protected for certain species or habitats or different reasons. There would be ideally a bit of a scientific study about that. They delineate an area. They would engage with people, get buy-in. And then it would go through a formal process of being legally gazetted. And then what should happen afterwards is you get resources attached to the area to do management so you can achieve your objectives that you have. That doesn't always happen. I mean, 
there, I wouldn't say they're good reasons. There's understandable reasons. Uh, in some cases, it's economic. You'll get um, a minister would be very pro creating a protected area, or maybe it's the end of their term. They want to make an impact. They'll sign a legal decree. They'll create something, but there might not be any resources attached to that. So this is invariably where the concept of a paper park comes in. You have an area that legally is a protected area in terms of the gazettement documentation, but there's none or next to no resources for the management. There are some very noticeable examples globally, but I would think the majority of protected areas are actually doing what they were set out to do. They are actually improving the conservation of their species and habitats. Um, it's a very slow process in some cases. It can take 30, 40, 100 years to see a difference in some places. In other cases, you can see it overnight, nearly. But it is, it's the, the creation of a protected area is maybe step three or four out of 20 steps. It's um, not the end of the story, it's the beginning of the story. Mm -hmm. And it is a challenge. Some countries have tried to do a rush to get sites in there, and they've put in these big sites with no management. Other countries are taking a more precautionary principle. And you know, when I've spoken to some of them before, they said, we're doing something, but we're waiting till everything is in place before we do it. Mm -hmm. Then we'll say it. Other countries are saying, well, we want to get it in because our term of office is finishing. So we want to try and do it. And you see this in the United States, for example, when President Obama was finishing off, he expanded this Papahanaumokea site in the um, Hawaii Islands massively. And his predecessor, Bush, had expanded the Pacific Remote Islands site massively. And you see a lot of this, but then you need to have an after process. And that can be a challenge. Where I'm from in Cape Town, in the late 90s, the what's now called the Table Mountain National Park uh, was expanded. It used to be the tip of a peninsula, which was pretty biodiverse, and there was no concrete there, basically. And then they expanded it way further north to encompass the whole mountain chain. But in doing so, they included a bunch of different little hamlets, you know, small towns and lots of roads and you know a lot more infrastructure so overall the total percentage of green area decreased quite considerably even though the total area increased and that kind of just struck me what always made me wonder can you still really call this a protected area and i think i was being very purist by asking that question but there are probably many examples around the world where similar things happen and you know there really isn't very much green area or very much area of biodiversity value but it's still called a protected area so it's not really the same as a, as a paper park right but it's more just yeah. a just a case of you know does that really qualify as a protected area and yet on paper you know when when a country is seeking to fulfill its obligations to the cbd for example they can tick the same box that another country yeah. could that uh, conserve uh, you know wilderness I think that's a, that's a really interesting question, Andre, and I think it's one of probably the fundamental issues people have when they talk about protected areas. So um, I think the answer is it probably depends. In some cases, I mean, that example you gave is you had an area that was maybe small that you could say had a very strong level of protection or enforcement of the rules. Um, there was maybe very extensive management measures, so it was quite compact, so they, they were able to control the area very well. Mm -hmm. When it expanded off and started including urban areas and infrastructure, you can probably have the same level of management and all of that. Then you might say, do you need the same level of management? If I was being the advocate of Elan expansion, I might say what they have done is they've maybe put core areas, they've zoned that larger site. And in some areas they've got zones of, I'll use the word strict protection, 
whereas there's a very strong regime in place of what you can and cannot do. In other areas, they might say there's less of a, a threat or a pressure. So we don't maybe need to manage it to the same level, but we still have a small degree of management because those activities that happen in those adjacent areas impact our core areas. So if we expand it and put an urban area into that, we're managing it a little bit. Uh, if I flipped the case and became a purist, I would say, how can you control what's happening in those urban areas and that infrastructure? So surely you should take those areas out of your protected area and be honest about it and say, you know, if my back garden is in a protected area, what does that mean? In Europe, it's very common to have urban areas and protected areas. In some cases, it's because the areas were originally designated for natural beauty. So the idea of the protected area was for a natural beauty, and then they would have transformed that into maybe a scientific reason of saying, well, it's we're protecting, you know, a landscape features. So maybe uh, grasslands or habitats, like wetlands, for example. And they might say then it's probably easier just to draw a big line on a map and say this area is in it than having three or 400 different land parcels that somebody's got to manage. Uh, so it could come down to just an ease of management. And then what they might do with those people who are managing those urban areas when that say, listen, you are part of a protected area. That means you need to be aware of the impact you are having in terms of what threats or pressures you're putting on the biodiversity areas of importance that are there. You have the two options happening constantly. Mm-hmm. In Europe, where I've done a lot of work, it's a very human modified landscape. We don't have a lot of pristine nature. We have a lot of human influenced, very biodiversity rich in places. So we have a lot of species rich grassland, which if you left alone, you'd end up having maybe two or three species of forest coming in there. So historically we had bison, large herbivores breaking this down and grazing. But now we have a lot of traditional land management measures, which increased biodiversity richness. And so you're managing the landscape in a way. So having people living in an area in places of Europe actually benefits biodiversity. In other places in the world, you don't want people in there. So it's about what the site is for and what it's not for and what the threats and pressures are and how you manage it. But yeah, you, you, there's a lot of these urban protected areas and peri-urban protected areas. Although there are different reasons for protecting an area, biodiversity is kind of a common currency, isn't it, across the world? And, and obviously that becomes more important the more biodiverse the place is. But one of the criticisms of protected areas is that they very often don't capture as many species as they as they need to. Do you think there's progress that's been made in that area? Because the tricky thing there is that there's also a correlation between human population density and biodiversity, right? So the areas that are the most biodiverse are also potentially the most difficult to protect. I mean, invariably, when protected areas are created, they're created for a purpose. And this can be a cause of conflict with people from an academic perspective or even a, a physical perspective. I mean, invariably, when you look at what a site is protected for, when you dive into legislation, it will generally say it is for species X, species Y, habitat X or landscape or blah, blah, blah. And you then sometimes see people saying, well, why is this species not being protected in that site, it's a protected area, it should be protecting it. And the park manager might say, that's not why I'm protecting this area. I'm protecting it for the birds, or I'm protecting it for the flowers, or and that's then having knock-on effects of different things. And this species 
isn't as important locally as it might be elsewhere in the world or something like that. So, I mean, what we do in Europe, and this is also a case of um, a lot of sites that kind of get, it's kind of international sites. I would call it, you know, the World Heritage sites, uh, Ramsar sites. These are areas designated under international conventions or obligations. They invariably do ask you to say, what are you protecting the site for? And in Europe, we've got something called Natura 2000, where hmm. basically there's 27,000 sites and there's a list of the species and habitats that are important in Europe. And you've got to say which of those that site is protecting. And then there is another list of species that if they occur, you're meant to protect them in there as well. So they go back in and say, this site is protected for X, Y, and Z. That's what we're doing. And in, in principle, it should be improving the condition of those. Um, it does mean that you might have certain things happening in that site that a person might go, wow, this is incompatible with my understanding of a protected area. But it's about the purpose. Like, what are you doing it for? Again, they, you might say with limited resources, you can't do everything. Mm -hmm. um, and in some cases, you might say, well, this, this species or habitat is more important. It's more threatened or it's unique or this is an invasive one. This, we don't have a problem with this bird species or something like that. It's everywhere. We're not worried about it. We've done the science. We're happy about it. But with this kind of oversight, maybe for um, at the World Heritage level or Ramsar, the countries can be held, held accountable if they're not doing something. And in Europe, we do this a lot. Like a person, anyone can go into a site and if they feel something is happening that is incompatible with the objectives of that site, they can write to the European Commission and they can launch a case and infringement proceedings against governments. Similar with the World Heritage Site, it's often very common for people, generally NGOs, to write to UNESCO and say, this is happening in this site. We believe this is incompatible with it. They can be given kind of a yellow card warning and it can be the case of these designations can be removed from sites. It doesn't happen very often, but it's a pretty big thing to say we don't feel that that site warrants this level of protection or, or, or certification or awareness anymore. And that you either need to do a lot better or else we can't be associated with that. IUCN have this process called a green list for protected areas and conserved areas. They've come up with a really comprehensive list of activities and tasks for a site and what they want to do is they want a number of sites in every country to be what they would call greenest certified and these would act as exemplars for every other site in the country and these would be areas that would be independently verified so you would have a park manager a national agency putting a site up for greenest certification they'd be reviewed by an expert group who are familiar with the local situation and who have the biodiversity understanding of that area and maybe the cultural awareness of that area as well. And they would work with the park managers to say, we feel this is an area you're weak on, this is how you could fix it. And yeah, so this is a little bit of kind of the, maybe the, the auditing that a lot of people would like to have happening. And it is common as well for countries to review their protected area networks as well. Um, I know in Europe, we've had three or four cases where countries have substantially reviewed their network by bringing in NGOs. I mean, they may not have offered it themselves. It might have been a bit under political pressure. But I know IUCN and their World Commission on Protected Areas are often very active in doing this with countries. Um, I know Denmark, where I'm living at the moment, they reviewed their sites, I think, about two years ago. They did a comprehensive review of all the designations they used, and the UK did this a few years ago, and they looked at the designation and the reasons why sites were created. They compared it to the IUCN definition of protected areas, and they flagged areas where there was issues. 
they worked to resolve them, or if they couldn't be resolved, they said, from our perspective, this is not a protected area, so it shouldn't be classified as such. And some countries went, I agree with you. Some countries went, well, let's see how we can change this. And other countries might have said, that's your opinion, not ours. But it's getting more common. In some cases, one of the issues is that the area could be designated as a protected area and priority for biodiversity. But if something else happens, like they found some mineral reserves or oil in there, a different ministry might come in and say, well, actually, we're taking priority of this area. So the environment ministry may not be the strongest. Again, there's some very notable examples where this has happened, but there's also areas where they've said, this is pristine. You're not allowed to go near it. Most of what you've spoken about now kind of sounds, I can picture that very clearly in Europe. But what about kind of looking at the sort of the opposite end of the spectrum? You know, some of the developing countries like Brazil and Indonesia, where there are diminishing but still quite vast uh, swathes of very biodiverse forest. Do you think it does make a difference if an area is protected or not? Does protected status make a difference to whether a place is going to face deforestation? or? or I, I think it's a, it's a good question. I mean, I think in principle, yes, it does make a difference. And I know in the Amazon, there's a kind of a cat and mouse game where they use a lot of remote sensing to look at deforestation. And what was happening, they began to realize was that the people doing it began to realize what the resolution of the satellite imagery was and started deforesting at a level below that. And then they started looking at saying, well, we can't spot the deforestation anymore, but we can spot the roads that are being created and the habitats that are happening, like people having shacks and they could do it. I mean, oh, everyone is aware it's a protected area and they're aware what they're doing in general is illegal. They've just made the decision that they don't matter. And in some cases, it's um, individual people. In other cases, it's organizations doing it where they either claim they don't know or they don't regard the protected areas as a reason why they shouldn't do it. Or maybe they've been given a license by one ministry to do it, which is at odds with a different ministry. Mm. Um, so they would say, we're not doing anything wrong because we've given the appropriate authorization for this activity. I mean, I think my philosophy is that if it's not protected, there's not a chance. If it is, at least you have a legal mechanism to try and do something about it. Now, that might be an issue in some judicial systems where it isn't as open or they're not as willing to do this. But fundamentally, if they're a legal creation, there should be some recourse for that. Mm -hmm. Now, that might be a very kind of entitled opinion about things, but it does come down to resources. In a lot of countries, there's a willingness to protect. The legal infrastructure is willing to do it. There just aren't resources. They've got maybe five, six rangers to cover an area that's, you know, the size of a small country in Europe, and they just can't be everywhere at the same time. So they start using more and more remote sensing to understand what's happening, and they can track things. But in other cases, you know, there's a number of examples in, in Africa where you see basically military convoys going in, deforesting and poaching. And I, I heard of cases from some countries there, they've, there's uh, attack helicopters armored vehicles, there's 100, 200 strong people going in, and it's a business. It's a challenge, but I think if it's not there, there's no chance. Mm -hmm. If it is there, at least you've got one of the key steps in place, and I think as we said earlier on, creation of a boundary is only step one. Necessary, um, but not sufficient. Lot, yeah. yeah, yeah. there's a lot of cases where you can quite clearly see it makes no difference. Mm -hmm. Other cases you can see, um, I was chatting with a guy a few years ago, and they looked, I think it was in I think it was in the Amazon. They looked at a series of satellite imageries of a wave of deforestation coming in for agricultural practices. Mm -hmm. And they said they could see it slowed down 
as it got close to protected areas. In some cases, mm. it was like a a wave of water moving around a protected area, and that you know that was success in a very bad situation. I mean, nothing should have happened, but yeah. So it's a deterrent general, at the very least. Yeah, yeah it's mm. yeah. Hmm. Yeah, and it's very rare people have no understanding of what they're doing, at least at the commercial level when they're doing it. At a local level, you might say some people weren't aware, they didn't know were they in the site or not in the site. But in most cases, when it gets to a level of having a big impact, everybody's fully aware that they're within a protected area and they know what they're doing is wrong. They might decide that doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. They've got different um, needs they need to address. Right. I think we're, we've kind of been uh, skirting a little bit the issue of and you touched on it earlier on as well. You mentioned other effective conservation measures, OECMs. I was kind of wondering what is the difference between a, yeah. a good OECM and a not so good protected area, for example. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think a very quick history lesson. So th- this concept came into existence, I think, at like two or three o'clock in the morning in Japan, in I think it was the 2010, 2011, mm-hmm. in Nagoya during negotiations. And it was there, but no one quite knew what it was. I mean, it even got to the stage where no one knew what acronym to use for it, which people working in academia and policy love a good acronym. So you know you're in a bad situation. People don't know what acronym to use. Um, It was only in 2018 that IUCN's World Commission Protected Areas got the definition. It's not their delay, but they proposed one at um, the CBD's COP in Sharm el-Sheikh in late 2018. You can boil it down to say it is an area where there is biodiversity protection happening, but it's not a priority. It's not the primary objective. So if it's a primary objective, it should be called a protected area. And another thing they have said is you recognize an area as an other effective area-based conservation measure. You don't designate it as such. So it's not like a title. Mm-hmm. It's where they've said it's a very clear case of this is where something is happening. And we're now looking at it and saying, okay, is what you are doing having a biodiversity value? Mm-hmm. If so, that area could be considered to be an OECM or effective area conservation measure. And the the reason why this term came in is that there's a realization that the protection of biodiversity cannot only occur in classic protected areas. It has to take into the wider landscape. And then there's also a realization that in some cultures or ideas, concept of a protected area is not something that they appreciate or they value or they feel there's an issue if their area becomes a protected area they might lose some control or influence about it some of the sacred national sites are indigenous areas this is a concern for them because of the regimes they live in or the, the system they live in with an OCM there's three kind of aspects of it is what they call ancillary conservation which is where as a byproduct of managing of an area there is biodiversity value and an example of that would be where you might have an area you're protecting for freshwater for drinking a lot of shipwrecks are protected they might be military war graves but but they're actually very rich for biodiversity it's a very small one but there's coral growth there they're used by fish to spawn so you're not allowed to do certain things there but biodiversity is taking value of that. Then you have areas where conservation is a secondary activity. If there's a conflict between one or two, one wins, but they want biodiversity as a value of it. And then the other aspect is where it really is effectively a protected area, but for different reasons, they don't want to have that title attached to it. There is a, a law, there is a legal framework, there is an equivalent measures happening to a particular area. 
and we're then recognizing that these areas are other effective area-based conservation measures and have a biodiversity value. You might argue some sacred natural sites in some countries that prohibit certain activities, they're primarily a spiritual aspect, but they are having a biodiversity value. Mm -hmm. So now we could tag them as an OECM, and that could then help a country with its coverage targets for protecting biodiversity. We did a little project in Europe where we looked at some of these for Spain and Finland. And we found you need to do a case-by-case basis. Um, in Europe, we've got a lot of legislation, a lot of laws for protecting the environment as a whole. And we started off by thinking, could we just say everything that's under Directive X is an OECM? We looked at a few examples. We said, no, it's context-specific uh, that, you know, for it to become an OECM, you have to have a delineation. There has to be a management. There has to be a governance. And you have to be able to show that there's a biodiversity value coming from it. Globally, they have seen there's an increase. I mean, especially in some areas with indigenous peoples. This is recognizing what has been there all along. Um, Canada, for example, is a very strong advocate of OECMs because they say it just recognizes the way they work with with local communities. And I know recently in Algeria, I think in Morocco as well, those, those countries have said there's a lot of OECMs and some very large ones that they've actually put in. In one or two cases, these were areas that were previously called protected areas. And when they did an assessment of them, they said they're actually, they don't meet the definition. But I think there was a time when there was a fear that if you remove them completely, you didn't value biodiversity on conservation. But now it's a case of recognizing this. I saw on the, the World Database on Protected Areas that the very recent April 2021 update had about a quarter of a million protected areas listed or you know, records of a quarter of a million protected areas. But then the number of OECMs was 148, so a tiny number. Yes. So, so why, why is that? Is that just because it's such a new thing? There's a, over a quarter of a million, say we would say classic, formally recognized protected areas. In some cases, these are genuinely unique sites. In other cases, they're actually probably more, you'd be more honest saying they're a network of sites. Um, but again, with, with the OECMs, it's a very new concept and a lot of countries are still struggling to understand. But there's a lot of similar concepts. I know in the Arabian Peninsula, they have a concept called, I think it's a Diwa. It's about protecting grazing. And this was for millennia. This is what they did. Mm-hmm. You might, some people might say, well, that's an OECM. That is an area that is for protecting biodiversity. But maybe there hasn't been a recognition that it's an OECM yet. And again, I think in some parts of the world, they might actually have a lot of sites that could become OECMs. Mm-hmm. Other parts of the world, there won't be a lot. In Europe, we've begun the process of looking at what could be. Generally speaking, I, I gather that you probably in, in favor of the of the concept, right? The OECM, that it's a, it's a useful addition or useful complement to protected areas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's a recognition that positive conservation of biodiversity can happen outside protected areas, mm-hmm. which is the reality. And we'll see, I think, the next decade or so, a lot more of a focus that we need to talk about landscape and seascape protection. Mm-hmm. not just about protected areas. And they're going to be always an important tool for that, but we're focusing on the, the wider, you know, it's you can only protect the biodiversity of the planet if you start looking at a planet scale. So it has to be landscape, it has to be seascape. And within that, you can have certain zones that are going to be maybe have stronger degree of protection, other areas maybe weaker degree. I think in the next decade or so, we'll start seeing 
that people will start expecting a degree of biodiversity outcome from practically everywhere. Mm. Just a, a bit of a subject change, but I think that we have mentioned uh, marine protected areas a couple of times, but not really spoken explicitly about them. Are there any fundamental differences? I mean, of course, the one is wet and the other one's dry, but are there any other fundamental differences between terrestrial and marine protected areas in terms of management and effectiveness? There's a, there's a few, I think, obvious things. So it's generally a lot easier to see what is happening on land than in the sea. If you look out in the ocean, you just see maybe a blue or a green. You don't quite know what's happening underneath it. Maybe you can see a, a, a fishing boat going through, but maybe they're a kilometre away and the net is underneath. So one of the biggest issues is people's awareness of is there something happening or not, or just not being aware of the complexity of the marine environment because you've got the depth aspect as well. So on land, we tend to look and we see a hill and our eye goes, okay, it's rolling up. We can see what's happening. In the marine, you look across, you know, is there a massive canyon underneath there or is it sandy banks? Um, so I think people's awareness when they look out into the ocean about how amazingly diverse it is is a challenge. But I think then it's about monitoring the, the issues. And it, we're getting a lot better at doing this. I mean, a lot of fishing fleets have to have these beacons on so you can track what they're doing. There's an organization called Global Fishing Watch do amazing work on that. There's been a lot of publicity about their work in certain areas about this. But using Earth observation satellite imagery, you can track a lot of activity on the marine now. I suppose one of the, the biggest issues historically why there wasn't any protection there was because there was a lack of legal backing for it or countries were debating where their control began and ended. Yeah. I think it was a Greenpeace in the 90s took the UK government to court and they were saying that if they claimed economic sovereignty over any body of water, they were obliged to protect it. And I think that was probably the biggest change in when suddenly protected areas moved from immediately off your local beach or something further out into what we call the economic exclusive zone and into the high seas. And then there was a big beginning of an understanding of how connected the oceans are and how bad the situation is. And that's why we started seeing a, a big spike in growth from about 2000 onwards. More awareness better legal framework to do these things. You had a lot of the regional sea conventions were being created, like in the North Atlantic with OSPAR, the Baltic with Helcom. And there was the countries that are working together to say, we need to start doing more and more. And in the South Atlantic, it's Kamler with, the, uh, with Antarctica. And there was a growing realization that the damage that's happening in the marine can be difficult to see immediately, but has huge impacts across the entire planet. And I think there's a beginning realization that a lot of conflict is happening because of fishing in certain areas. I mean, a lot of the piracy of Somalia became from these super trawlers coming in, harvesting away. Um, and then, you know, with ocean acidification, we're beginning to realize that with greenhouse gases and carbon, the ocean can soak up a lot of it. But if it's damaged, it can't. It's becoming more practical for countries to start protecting it. Um, and then... It can be easy to create these very, very large sites, you know, a million plus square kilometers. That's the easy part, but you need to monitor it. And um, I know Palau, for example, has been very proactive about protecting its waters, but it's got a very limited maritime force to control these waters. And this was a big challenge to them. And they often have fishing fleets coming in and they, by the time they get there, they're gone. So they're trying to work out what they can do about this. And there's a lot of discussion about, you know, if you can use satellite imagery to work out who they are, how can you penalize them when they go to their port? 
but um, the murky world of fishing. There's a book called The Outlaw Ocean by a guy called Ian Urbina. And uh, if anyone who's interested to understand the complexities about legal systems in the marine environment and fishing, they should read that book. But it is an area I think we're going to see a, a lot more. And there's a more of awareness that it's increasingly important to not only create these large sites, but to protect them and protect them strictly. It strikes me that protecting, and that this is sort of based on limited ecological knowledge of the, yeah. of the sea, so I could be wrong here, but protecting a fairly strategically a small area of the sea entirely you know so that it can act as a nursery a fish nursery in particular that you can really get huge bang for your buck and maybe more than you can on the land i mean the there are these they call them no take zones Mm -hmm. um is is the language that's been used for them and there's a lot of evidence that shows that they have overwhelmingly positive impact uh in terms of the, the fish yield um because there's so much connections in the marine and again there's a huge amount of evidence that shows that when you do it you see positive effects very quickly as well when i was working in cambridge one of our junior staff had just done a master's in an area in the uk looking at lobster size and within one or two seasons they could see the lobster size in the no-take area was significantly bigger than outside mm-hmm. and that was in a very very small area and there's a great example in turkey where there's an ngo um his name escapes me at the moment, but they put a portion of a bay as a no-take area, and they met a huge resistance at the start for it. He said he couldn't walk along the street. But over a few years, by working with them, the fishers, they began to realize they got increased yield. And he said one day he met a bunch of them. They're walking on the street, and they're like, oh, you, come over here. And he was like, oh, no. And they're like, why are you only having a small area of this bay being no-take area? You should have at least half of it. The people whose livelihoods were on fishing began to realize that this no-take area was really beneficial for them. So they were doing less fishing and getting more yield from it and making mm-hmm. more money mm-hmm. from this. And then they could do some other activities. So they policed this very, very strictly. So I think in the marine, yeah, no-take is what needs to be done. And as long as those areas are in the important areas. So in some cases, you can have a very large area that's no-take, but it, there's not a lot of threats there and you need it in an area where it can have a big impact. That point on community buy-in is a nice segue to the last question that I wanted to ask you actually. So this is a topic which I'm planning to actually cover with someone else in quite some detail, but I think that it would be um, an incomplete discussion without at least uh, mentioning it. And that is the issue of impacting communities uh, of the way that protected areas impact uh, on communities so that that marine protected area example you gave now was a very much a win-win situation but even nowadays the sort of colonial legacy of protected areas is having an influence on on communities Uh, so for example people who live adjacent to them and and have to deal with elephants uh, destroying their crops every now and again uh, and then even the even more serious issue of wildlife that threatens life you know crocodiles and hippos so these are real issues for some communities who might benefit to some extent from the parks but also the you know the sacrifices might outweigh the benefits so again i just wanted to ask if you could kind of give me a bit of an update on on that situation yeah. and whether it's changed or how things are looking it's a, it's a very pertinent question and i think the answer is it varies tremendously across the world. And I think there's there's two elements here. One is the impact and benefits for communities with 
associated with protected areas. And the other one then is the maybe colonial legacy. And I mean, I know you said you're going to discuss this a bit more, but I mean, again, this is an issue in some countries. A lot of these sites have been imposed on areas. I mean, I know Palanisburg in South Africa, people were kicked out. It's an amazing area. It's fantastic. It's beautiful. But people who are living there were kicked out. And, you know, you need to consider how do we do this with the benefit of everyone? And that can be a big challenge in a number of countries, especially in Africa, where the borders are artificial. And you've um, traditional land spanning across two borders and one suddenly is a protected area where you can't do anything. And they're going like, hey, this is our land. And maybe there needs to be a different management regime happening in there. I mean, it's about benefit sharing. And that's what it comes down to. And in Europe, we give subsidies. So we have a lot of the farming community. We give subsidies for farming in a particular way, for not farming in certain areas, fishing likewise. So it can be relatively easy. I'm not saying easy, but relatively easy to engage with the community. And in my experience, you very clearly see when you do engage with the community, you have more effective protected areas. But then how can they benefit? directly and indirectly from that. Um, there's a number of examples where, you know, protected areas are areas of food security. You can get firewood from them in certain communities. Um, so it's very beneficial flooding, disaster risk reduction, shade, reducing temperature. These are all very nice things, but sometimes if someone says, but yes, I have to feed my family, you know, I could hunt or farm in this area. Now you're telling me I can't. That's when I think society as a whole or governments need to recognize that these people have a large part to play in benefiting society as a whole and there does need to be some adequate compensation for them. Well I hope you found that interesting. As mentioned I plan to soon have someone on the podcast to discuss the more specific aspects of the impacts of protected areas and perhaps conservation more generally on local communities. For the next episode, however, I'll be tackling something different. Filmmaker, writer and photographer Adam Veltz and I will be talking about the problem with some of the big, expensive and charismatic conservation projects of the world. These are very often very media friendly and very well advertised and very good at grabbing attention. And the ones that we'll be discussing are still ongoing and still very popular but we'll be questioning whether they really deserve to be or whether that money could have been better spent elsewhere. So if that sounds interesting to you, I do hope that you'll join us again. Bye for now.